Friends, this morning is the third of a series of messages in the new year on the names of Christ. We call the series Jesus Name Above All Names. And uh, I apologize this morning. I know our sound is a little quarter turn off. We're working hard to correct that and bring that into line. But as we began the series, we were looking at names, very much descriptive names, uh, concerning our Lord Jesus. Coming out of the Christmas season, for instance, we were told that the angels commanded Joseph to name Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua, form of Joshua from the Old Testament. We heard that he was prophesied, this is the prophetic uh, child, Emmanuel. And so we had multiple names of Jesus used, and, and then we had titles given to Jesus. And then it comes into Jesus' life, and Jesus gives himself names and titles again and again. And for some people that can be confusing, but if we attend to it, it blesses our hearts. It's an amazing insight into our Lord. It's a window into his nature, his character, his activity, his ministry in our lives. But at the beginning of the service, I want, to, I want to challenge you over the next half hour or so to listen and apply it to yourself. Remember the first names that we spoke of, of Jesus, whether it was the bread of life or the good shepherd, each one of those had an action step at the end of it. What do you do with bread? You consume it, you eat it, you live on it, it gives you life. Jesus, the Word of God, we need to consume the Word of God daily, our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And that prayer is for far more than physical sustenance. It's also the spiritual bread of life revealed to you in the Word of God. You need to systematically consume the Word of God. Let the Word of God transform your minds. Don't be conformed, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this present world, but have your mind transformed. And that's done through God's Word and God's Spirit as you eat the bread of life. Action step. I love that. What about the Good Shepherd? If you have a shepherd, what do you do? You follow him. Shepherds aren't like uh, drovers who drive animals ahead of them, a shepherd walks in front. And his animals see him, hear him, and we follow. We are the flock of Jesus. We are the sheep of his pasture. And he is leading us to still waters and green pastures, abundant life, if we attend and keep our ears and our eyes trained on the Master. So we were challenged, how am I following Jesus? How do I follow him in my life as a young person, as a student? as a person with a job in the midst of the busyness of life, as a grandparent, how do I follow the Good Shepherd? Well, today's passage, I dare say the, the name or title, and remember in the, in the Bible, names and titles were important. A name was not just a label to tell you apart from everybody else. It was a window into who you were. It could reveal your character, your personality, or even your destiny. They were important. Strangers, when met in the wilderness, they wouldn't share their names. They would introduce one another. It reminded me of yesterday. I'm sitting on a plane, and uh, it wasn't crowded, thankfully. The plane down to Phoenix is packed, full of golf clubs and golfers and people. Coming back, it's not nearly as busy. And there was empty middle seats. Those of you who fly planes know, 
the middle seat is where you don't want to be. I had the aisle seat. That's what I always choose. And an older woman had the window seat. Well, it's almost three hours, so eventually uh, she speaks and we speak to one another. And uh, I learned so much about her. She's a widow from Brandon. She had in-laws where I pastored in Esterhazy. And the trip she's been on, I never learned her name. <laughs> you know, it's like Old Testament. You didn't tell somebody your name because they would have too much power over you. TMI, too much information. But, uh, you know, she's a little widow lady and we get off and a lady in the seat in front. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I heard you were a pastor in Medicine Hat at one time and she had all these friends and family too. And so uh, I got to shepherd them through customs and show them how the new automatic things, you put your passports in and it's just what we pastors do. You know, you're, you're like a, a, a junior shepherd. You're helping people through things and it just comes naturally to us. But it, afterwards I thought to myself, I never never learned her name you know never learned her name if i'd shared my name she would have popped in and visited sometimes you know because she loves to drop in and visit people but uh that's interesting names used to tell you a lot about a person but now we have to spend time whether it's on an airplane or on a bus stop and share about ourselves names don't say so much and i think this morning we will be tempted to think that the title of christ that we share today is just a label. But when we drill down into it, there's so much. And does it have an impact on us? Christ. For many people, the word Christ is merely part of their profanity vocabulary. It's taking the name of Jesus in vain in a horrible way. But Christ from the New Testament as revealed to us is powerful in Luke chapter 9, one of, the, one of the most important turning points in the lives of Jesus' followers, His apostles. I'll begin a little earlier than on the screen. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private and His disciples with Him, He asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. I know it's kind of comical, but there are people around that grew up in the church and just assume that Christ is Jesus' last name. He was raised by Joseph and Mary Christ, living in Nazareth. We use it as a last name, Jesus Christ. What he was referred to as Jesus of Nazareth because they didn't really have technically last names. They often defined a person by where they were from, Jesus of Nazareth. But we know him as Jesus Christ. And Peter uses it correctly here because it is a title. He says, you are the Christ, the Christ. So based on that this morning, we are going to drill down and look at the meaning of Jesus' title as the Christ. Called this morning's message, the Anointed One. You look at that graphic up there, if you could see it clearly, it has Jesus, the Christ, written both in Hebrew and English, or at least transliterated from Hebrew and English. The fact is, Messiah and Christ, of course, 
are the same word. One is based on the Hebrew, Messiah, and the translation into Greek is Christos, which we transliterate into English as Christ. Now it all begins with the Old Testament, where there were many messiahs. You say, how could there be many messiahs? There's one messiah they look forward to, and Jesus is him. Start with me here. In Hebrew, if you want to rub oil on something, or you want to paint a fence, it's mashak. Mashak. You add one little Hebrew letter, the yod, the littlest letter in the middle, and it's then mashiach. Mashiach. Messiah. It's mashiach, which now means not to rub on or to anoint something, especially with oil, but now mashiach is the anointed one. It's the one who has been anointed. Well, that is an important thing. Throughout the Old Testament, we see people anointed for various purposes and in various circumstances, and every one of them is important in religious terms. And then Jesus we see as the promised Mashiach, Christos, anointed one, God's anointed. That's what Peter said. Who do you say I am? You are the anointed one. Literally, Peter said. You're the anointed one of God. Now we'll see what that meant in Jesus' life and the importance to it. But be thinking, Christ, anointed one, what would be my response to that? I eat bread, I follow a shepherd, what do I do with a Christ? Let's look together. First, really quickly, let's go through the anointed ministries of the Old Testament. These are the people who were anointed by God in the Old Testament. The first, if you're one of those people, I always get a kick out of January, February, the read through the Bible systematically in a year, people, Boy, the first couple months, you are in the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and you get into Exodus, and you get into Leviticus, and you learn far more about the priests and anointing and uncleanliness and, clen- and leprosy, and it just goes on and on. And some of it is really not very pleasant to deal with, but it's the result of sin, and, and that's just the, the Old Testament. Well, the guys that God chose to deal with the sinful repercussions and effects of sin in the lives of God's people Israel were the Kohen. Kohen. It's like Leonard Cohen, the famous Canadian lyricist. A Kohen is the Hebrew priest. It's the word for priest. So the Lord among His people Israel in the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron especially, Moses' brother, He raised up a group of Kohen, of priests. And they were set apart to do that service, especially in and around the tabernacle and later the temple, ministering as intercessories between God, a holy God, and a sinful people, the priests. To show that they were set apart for that holy ministry, they were anointed. They're the first we see anointed in Scripture. In fact, before we see them being anointed in Exodus chapter 30, it's a fascinating chapter because that's where God gives them the recipe for the anointing oil. And He says, this will be the recipe from now on. It's olive oil with myrrh, liquid myrrh, with cinnamon, and with two other spices that we don't use commonly over here, it would have smelled amazing. 
you would have known someone was anointed not just you see them they look a little shiny but you would smell it it was just sensory overload and god said nothing else you could anoint the priests the the vessels in the tabernacle but you put this on anything else they are cut off from me and the people of israel because they have used something holy for something common so let's look at it exodus chapter 30 the lord says anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests say to the Israelites this is to be my sacred anointing oil for generations to come do not pour it on men's bodies do not make any oil with the same formula it is sacred and you are to consider it sacred and it consecrated them they were set apart as holy separate is what holy means for god's use so we see the priests the intercessors between god and man set apart anointed as holy but not only priests were anointed we see suddenly the prophet samuel takes a horn of anointing oil and he anoints saul who would rather be plowing with his dad's animals he takes this big man Saul big good-looking guy and the people were begging for a king but in choosing a king God said he needed to be anointed so we see in 1 Samuel 10 the anointing 1 Samuel 10 the anointing of the first king of Israel verse 1 of chapter 10 in 1 Samuel says then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him saying has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Did you get that? Saul's not being consecrated as holy to intercede in the temple. He's being anointed, given honor and authority and power and position to rule and reign over God's people, his inheritance. So there's another anointing to power, to kingship, to authority and not only did that happen to saul but it became something that all the kings the next king is the davidic king king david himself you know the story god because of saul's disobedient heart and actions had taken the kingship away from saul and the lord said to samuel i'm going to give it to somebody else of my own choosing somebody whose heart is after my heart and so he went down god led him to the the house of Jesse, one of the tribal leaders down in Judah. And he went and he looked at those sons and just as he had chosen and, and, and been so impressed physically by Saul, the man looked every inch a king. Oh, those sons of Jesse, big strapping lads. They look like, and every time he, another son would come in, Saul's heart would leap, that's a king. And God would say, nope. You look at the outward, I look at the heart. And finally, we get to the point in verse 11 when they ran out of sons and god rejected all of them and samuel almost in despair so he asked jesse are these all the sons you have they're still the youngest jesse answered but he's tending the sheep samuel said send for him we will not sit down until he arrives so he sent and had him brought in he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, take note, 
the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, Samuel then travels on. So that anointing, that Davidic anointing, and we know it was special because God made a covenant with David that his throne would endure. The throne of David and his descendants would last forever. The Davidic covenant. But the anointing was not just with oil honoring him, visibly showing he has now been given authority and power by God to rule. But we see it symbolized the spiritual reality. The true anointing of David came as the Spirit of God came upon him and anointed his heart and life and the power of God's Holy Spirit was present in David's life. Well, those are not the only offices. They're the ones we think of first and foremost, priests and kings being anointed because the ceremonies of their anointing, they're spelled out for us. But God's great spokespeople, the prophets, they are referred to. We only see passing references to the fact that they may have been physically anointed with that special oil, the physical oil. But look at that wonderful passage in Psalm 105, which is quoted in Chronicles as well. Speaking of the people of God when they were just starting out, when there were but a few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake, he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. So we see here that the Lord refers to His prophets whose primary ministry is not to be prophetically telling the future. Some of them do that. They often, God reveals His activity and the future through prophets, but oftentimes it's for a point. They say, this will happen unless you do this. Judgment will come unless you repent. They tell the future often in that way. Far more often, they're not foretelling the future. They are forthtelling the Word of God. Thus says the Lord. They are foretellers more than their foretellers. They are spokesmen of the very Word of God. How do you know they're a prophet from God, anointed by God's Spirit, and given His Word? Their words are always true. They never speak a falsehood. One little fib, one little white lie would disqualify them from being a true prophet of the Lord. These are His mouthpiece. It's like they are the lawyers in the great courtroom of life where God's people go astray and commit crimes. They may be God's prosecuting attorneys. You think of those who come, people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and many of them not just thundering words of wrath, but giving words of comfort and hope, encouragement, pleas to repent and turn from their ways. God speaks through His prophets. Those are the anointed ministries. But you know, in those 400 years before, between the end of the written Old Testament and Jesus' birth, a lot of things happened in the world. A lot of things did. The Persian Empire... It's replaced by the Greeks. Alexander the Great took over in 300 B.C. and the world became Greek-speaking and very different. And the Greeks then be replaced by the Romans and now the world's different again, altogether different. But in that time, 
often years of suffering by God's people while they seemed to be sidelined. And after the Maccabees and none of the Romans, they lost their earthly king. They began to hunger for the anointed one. Not one of the anointed ones from the Old Testament, a prophet or a priest or a king. They wanted the anointed one. We start to see messianic teaching and prophecies in the Old Testament and then between the Testaments where they recognized a king was coming from the line of David and he would rule forever and ever. He would be the Messiah, the anointed one. In Greek, the Christos, the one that Peter says, you are the Christ. And remember when, uh, when, uh, when Jesus was first calling his disciples, what would they say to one another? They'd say, come, we found the Christ. We found the Messiah. They were all looking for him. They were suffering from the Romans. They want that Davidic king, the Messiah. So that's what they were looking for. And they found him in Jesus. Now, if Jesus is the Christ, I just asked the question. What, do you remember his anointing? Do you remember the oil and that big ceremony? Remember at the temple, remember that before the altar? I don't because it's not in there. How is the anointed one, the Messiah, Hamashiach, how is he not anointed? Well, I think we often miss that he was. We often misunderstand his anointing completely. Well, not completely. We know a lot of good about it, but we often miss it. So let's talk about the anointing of Jesus. It's in all the Gospels. It's right there, plain to see. They were looking for the Davidic king anointed with that sacred oil. But remember, the oil was only ever a symbol of God's Spirit coming in power upon a person's heart and life. We come to Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, we see his anointing. You often miss it because the little heading in your Bible says the baptism of Jesus. Let's look at that passage. Begin reading it down in, well, I'll, I'll, I'll begin after. You know what happened. Jesus comes down to the Galilee in the river of uh, Jordan and John the Baptist, his cousin, is baptizing people. Luke just says people are getting baptized and Jesus kind of joined in and we got in line. Jesus did. He just got in line. And he shows up and John refuses to baptize him. These people are being baptized for the repentance of sin. And John knew his cousin, the Messiah, had no sin. And Jesus picks it up in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 3. Jesus replied, it says, John said, it says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, baptizes him. Now we always look at that. We say, Well, what's that righteousness? Well, Jesus is doing it to publicly identify with sinners. He's the Son of God, Son of Man. He's just one of us. And that's public identification we look at a number of things we explain it that way that jesus is doing this to it's it's just wonderful but what this truly is is his anointing because as we continue it says in verse 16 as soon as jesus was baptized he went up out of the water at that moment 
heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and lighting on him and people witnessed it the spirit descending in bodily form one of the translations says as a dove coming to rest on jesus anointed him the spirit of god publicly visibly anointed jesus and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom i love with him i am well pleased jesus the son of god is now publicly the anointed one it's not that some people would say well he was just human and then god's spirit temporarily occupied him no he's the alpha and the omega he is the word in the beginning was the word but now publicly at the beginning of his ministry as the anointed one he's now anointed by god's holy spirit like his forefather david the spirit of power comes upon him jesus now acts as the anointed one not as the davidic king he does that but he takes unto himself the only one the perfect one all of the offices ministries and actions of the anointed in the old testament briefly as we look at that jesus as prophet i think outside looking in this is how most people recognize jesus they couldn't deny that he was a prophet that he was speaking powerfully the word of god we see that for instance in mark chapter 1 Mark chapter 1, the people, when they heard Jesus teaching and preaching, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. And they, their teaching consisted primarily of quoting other human teachers. Rabbi Halil said this. Rabbi Gamaliel said this. Jesus proclaimed the word of God as a prophet not just like an old testament prophet but perfectly because he not only preached the word of god he was the word of god jesus explained that we often think well jesus talking to him he was kind of the son you're hearing from the son but jesus says no during his earthly teaching ministry he was prophetically proclaiming the father's words understanding god is three in one father son and spirit but jesus in john chapter 12 says this as for the person who hears my words the prophet jesus but does not keep them i do not judge him for i did not come to judge the world but to save it there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words that very word which i spoke will condemn him at the last day for did i not speak for i did not speak of my own accord but the father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it i know that his command leads to eternal life so whatever i say is just what the father has told me to say jesus says i'm bringing you the good news the true goods the word of life the way of salvation what to say how to say it he is the perfect prophet proclaiming the true word of god we often overlook that i often you know i just discount it people say oh yeah you're i know you're a prophet they're talking to jesus and i said 
He's the Messiah. He's much more than, but he is the prophet. He's the perfect prophet. If you go back, just pop back, Clay, to that Jesus the prophet, that, that picture there of Jesus. That picture is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see the disciples in the distance trembling and fearful. And once the light kind of, they got used to the blinding white light, who do they see Jesus conferring with? Moses, who believe it or not, is reckoned as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets by Jewish people. Moses and the prophet Elijah. There is Jesus, the prophet par excellence, with his compatriots, Moses and Elijah. They were faithful in their day to an extent, but Jesus was perfect as the prophet. Well, now we look at Jesus as the priest. The priest. Remember what a priest does. A priest intercedes between holy God and sinful man, and a priest, through the sacrificial system, through the shedding of animal blood, would seek to make atonement, make peace, between sinful man and a holy God. Intercession and atonement. Incredibly, the whole central portion of the book of Hebrews teaches God's people that Jesus is not just a priest, He is the perfect, eternal high priest. He's the high priest. Not in the sense of Aaron, but from the order of Melchizedek, that that amazing hard to understand figure from the time of Abraham and the patriarchs. Jesus is the perfect high priest. The book of Hebrews, for those who were perhaps Gentile listeners or so forth, it explains in Hebrews chapter 5 what the office of priest actually is. It says, Every high priest selected from among men is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That's, in other words, he understands sinners because he's a sinner himself. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Those are human high priests. But the author of Hebrews tells these people who are waffling between whether to continue following Jesus or just settle for being Jews like everybody else because they were in a time of persecution. He says, Jesus is superior in every way. The gospel is superior to the law. Jesus is superior to the human sinful high priests. And all that's spelled out so clearly, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 26. Such a high priest as jesus such a high priest meets our need one who is holy blameless pure set apart from sinners remember that's what they were consecrated set apart as holy set apart from sinners exalted above the heavens unlike the other high priests he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people he sacrificed for their sin once for all, when he offered himself. He's not only the perfect priest, he was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Once and for all, not day after day after day, as we saw in the Old Testament times. Prophet, priest, and he's the king of kings. Jesus as our king. Sad to say, but 
truer words were never written, though they were done perhaps in jest, perhaps ironically, certainly to enrage the crowds. When Pontius Pilate, bowing to the will of the people, had Jesus crucified, though he found no guilt in him, and above the condemned as they suffered on the cross, their crime would be written. And Pilate says, his crime, and he wrote it in all three official languages, his crime, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You see there, well, if you know Hebrew and you're reading from right to left, you can see in the middle there, Melech, the king. Further down, you see Latin, see Rex, that's king. And then down in Greek, toward the end of the first line, B-A, funny letter, that's Basileus, king. He is the king. That was his charge. So he was recognized in his life, not only as a great prophet, Not only did he have a priestly sacrifice on the cross, but he was also a king. He was the Davidic king. He was the long-awaited-for anointed one, the messianic king that they were waiting for. Their prophecies, for instance, at Christmas, remember the prophecy of Jesus' birth, the child born unto us. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. Jesus is the eternal Davidic messianic king that was prophesied. Of all people, foreigners, the Magi recognized this. (laughs) Remember? Remember how they rocked King Herod's world when they rolled into town in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Amazing. They recognized he is the promised king the messianic figure, the Son of Man, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, this divine ruling King. Sad to say, later in Matthew, we see Jesus' opponents, the religious, the chief priest and others. When they call Him King, they do it as a mockery as Jesus is dying for their sin upon the cross. It says, In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And in the same way, the robbers that were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. So they knew the crowd tried to make Jesus king. Jesus was king. Pontius Pilate asked him directly, so you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer, and two gospels recorded is, it is as you say, yes, he is the king of the Jews. Prophet, priest, and king. And friends, though they mocked him and rejected his kingship, we celebrate the fact That Jesus is the Messianic King. One of the most powerful passages in the book of Revelation, a book filled with powerful pronouncements, 
is when the seventh trumpet is blown. The seventh angel sounded the trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. Jesus, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, the most powerful of all of His titles. And yet I ask the question again. The bread of life, we eat it. The good shepherd, we follow Him. But what to do with the Christ? Understanding, friends, that God's anointed is a prophet. Don't we hear and obey His Word? For it's the Word of God. Lord, open my ears to the prophetic teaching of Jesus speaking clearly His Father's words in just the right way to touch this broken heart. If He's priest, He's interceded between God and mankind by the perfect sacrifice of His body on the cross. You must receive that atonement. So if He is your priest, open your heart and receive His salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, do you? Have you received the saving, atoning death of Jesus as counting for you and cleansing you from sin? If He's your prophet, you hear Him and obey. If He's your priest, He's the only intermediary between God and man. You come to the Lord with through your intermediary. You pray in his name. And finally, is he your king? We know what to do with a king. He reigns. He rules. And we submit to it. Who is the king of your life? Really, who's at the, who's at the control stick flying the plane? Who is your king? For most of us, if we're honest, day to day, it's us. The master of my fate, the captain of my soul, that's the case that ship's headed for the rocks is jesus son of david messianic king is he your king today as the worship team leads us again in our closing song let's pray about the lord's anointed let's pray heavenly father lord so often the word christ the messiah it comes to our lips it comes and goes and we think of it just as a label designating this Jesus, this Joshua, from that one. But Lord, there's so much more. As Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the King in the line of David, whose rule will never end. Lord, we pray today that His reign and rule would extend to our hearts, that we would be part of the kingdom of God, following Him and naming Him as our only Lord and Master. And that, Lord, we will have found atonement and salvation through the one intermediary between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Lord, may He be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And may we worship and adore Him for it. And Lord, as our prophet, may we go daily to His Word, not only to attend it, but Lord, allow it to take root in our hearts and be applied to our lives, anointing us, by His Word, and by Your Spirit. For Lord, You call us then to take all of these things 
the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the love of God to a hurting world. Lord, do that through us as we name Jesus the Christ and not only believe it, but live it out in our lives. This is our prayer. And Lord, we thankfully pray it in the name of your Messiah. Amen. Will you please stand and sing with us? King of kings and Lord of lords. Have a good week.